Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. The Board of Regents overseeing the Connecticut State University system has a new proposal that, to put it mildly, faculty members aren't thrilled with. Meanwhile, UConn is proposing cuts that could cut into that research university's ability to, you know, do research. Those cuts, of course, are all part of the matrix of misery stemming from Connecticut's state of permanent fiscal crisis. That, of course, trickles down to the K-12 system, which will be facing a big lawsuit in January over state funding. Today in the Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable, we will consider some of these stories and also tackle the jumble of big-ticket entertainment proposals meant for the I-91 corridor. In a nutshell, you may not get to see outdoor pro soccer in Hartford anytime soon, and the MGM Casino in Springfield may be a lot less impressive than was promised, but hey, maybe you can go gamble at Bradley Airport and then hop a flight to Dublin. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us, as always, is Colin McEnroe. He's the host of The Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Hello, Colin. Good morning, Mr. Dankowski. Also joining us from the Connecticut Mirror is Jacqueline Rabe-Thomas, who reports on education and child welfare for the Mirror. Hello once again, Jackie. Hello. And Daniel Haar is here. Dan is a columnist for the Hartford Current. Hello there, Danny. How are With you? With a new name. Thank you. I know. We'll, we'll call you <laughs> Daniel throughout the course of the day. That's just I fine. Yeah, first, let's start with the, with the budget and some news. So we're all familiar, of course, with uh, Budget Chief Ben Barnes' claim that Connecticut is in a state of permanent fiscal crisis. Uh, This week, we saw more evidence of just how bad the crisis is. Governor Dan Malloy announced his desire for bipartisan negotiations to cut uh, the state budget. And he says the new budget shortfall was up to $120 million. First of all, more bad news for the Malloy administration this week, uh, Colin, as far as the actual budget numbers. But it has now essentially forced the governor to say, "Okay, you guys have been calling for a special session. Come on back. Let's let's talk about it and let's do it in a bipartisan manner. What 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 happens next year? Well, don't ask me that question. But um, I, I guess I would make two observations. One of them is, you know, I'm, we're continuing to see the contrast between the problem that Governor Malloy inherited five years ago, uh, which this was this massive three point seven six billion dollar deficit, and the kind of death by a thousand cuts process that seems to characterize his administration. So, I mean, he took his first hard swing at the big problem. But now it's, you know, every six weeks or so, we seem to hear about something new, some shortfall, some ways way in which wage stagnation or the stock market or something uh, has has caused yet another problem. It's like listening to Lincoln Chafee talk about why he uh, voted wrong on Glass-Steagall. There's just sort of like a million things that happen and a million different excuses. Now, yeah, I think the the poll that came out last week sent a powerful signal to Governor Malloy. He's very unlikely ever to seek this same office again. I think most of us think that anyway. But nobody likes to have really low approval ratings. And obviously those approval ratings, if you looked at the crosstabs, they were about the budget. They were about the financial state of Connecticut. That's that's where all the toxins or most of the toxins were living. So, yeah, he's got a whole new attitude, which is like very kumbaya. It's all – I mean this is within you know hours of a real nasty exchange in which his spokesperson, uh, Devin Puglia, took a, 
you know, kind of gratuitous swing verbally at uh, Gail Schlossberg. I mean, they've really gone from Hatfields and McCoys firing across the prairie at each other to this new notion, well, let's all pull together, let's all get along. Um, and, uh, you know, whether or not the legislature wants to hug Dan Malloy at this point on the budget is an interesting question. Well, I, I guess I just wonder, though, Colin, how kumbaya it is. I mean, even in, in the way he talks about it, he's talking about wanting serious ideas from serious people. I mean, even at the most uh, kumbaya moment, uh, Governor Malloy is still somewhat challenging the legislature, both Democrats and Republicans, to you know do something better than he's figured out. Wait a minute. Wolfie, did John just say serious? It's in! It's in! It's in! You cannot be serious! Um... <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I really I'm at a loss to predict how this unfolds, because, first of all, there are just conversations going on that we we're not seeing that we don't know about. And clearly a lot of pressure has a surprising amount of pressure. Pressure has been created by the two, the two Republican leaders, Fasano and Claritas, who've been making a lot of noise. And I think it was Ken Dixon who said basically what's happened is the, the sort of legislative slash political season never ends. I mean, in a way, the legislators, never, they're never really out of session. There's just this constant feuding uh, now about the budget. So, uh, Danny, what options exist here? If everyone gets back together and we start to look for a new way forward, I mean, what's the new way forward? There are continual rescissions. Everyone gets up in arms about them. It looks like the next time around we're going to have a bigger budget shortfall again. What can we do here? Well, economically, uh, I mean, I don't mean economically. When you look at the, the the financial picture itself, there are really three big things driving this problem, and that is Medicaid costs, debt costs, which we, for some strange reason, we seem to not be able to predict, even though it seems predictable. Uh, <laughs> and the third is income tax volatility, the result of of you know, depending on capital gains. It's not the overtime over here, and it's not the higher, slightly higher cost at the Department of Motor Vehicles. The stuff we keep writing about in on the margins is not really where the problem is. That's baseline budget management that occurs everywhere at every large organization. The problem here is those three things. And so all the f- bright ideas in the world won't solve the problem unless you address those three things. Uh, and and w- what I think I see here as with Colin, there's no way to predict this process, is the governor is out of options. And so therefore, he's calling people into the room. He's not calling them because he wants to talk. He's out of options. So they're going to have to sit down and talk about those three things. He's out of options, uh, Jackie. But I mean, some of the options so far when it comes to rescissions, when it comes to making trims of the budget, well, they hit directly at the things that you cover, social services for people in the state, education. I mean, when we talk about options, it seems as though, well, those are always the things that take the biggest hit. Right. So a few things have been floated as potential solutions. House Speaker Brendan Sharkey yesterday said, you know, what about a 2.5 percent decrease across the board for every line item? I don't know how accepted that would be by members of his own party as well as the governor. And then you have other things that's sort of targeting labor savings. the, all the labor unions except for one are in negotiations right now with this administration. Things that have been floated by the, the Senate chair of the Appropriations Committee have been furloughs. It's questionable how much that would actually save. And then there's you know early retirement benefits. The governor said those are off the table. He's also said, though, however, at that same press conference where he, he called for a special session or said a special session might be necessary, said, you know, labor savings have to be part of the discussion. But he stopped short of saying how much of a savings he was looking for or what sort of givebacks he might be looking for. Um, he also took off the table any new tax. He said that's not a discussion about that, about this. This is about 
us getting our spending under control. So we're not even going to have a discussion about any new taxes. We get this uh, Facebook comment from Heather who says, once again, state workers are being blamed for the state budget problems. Please point out the state employees pay their fair share of taxes rather than sheltering their money in offshore accounts. We also contribute to the local economy by spending money in the state. When is the millionaire class going to be asked to make sacrifices? It sounds like uh, taxes for richer Connecticut residents are off the table, Colin. So I don't think Heather, our Facebook commenter, is going to have her dreams come true. No, I don't think so either. And and everything that she says in her Facebook comment is true. But there's another reality here, too, which is that, you know, although in some ways employment has started to rebound slowly in Connecticut from the 2008 recession, and Danny will have more to say about this, but, you know, I'm not sure income has rebounded the same way. In other words, people have jobs, but the jobs don't pay as much as they used to. Uh, and, I mean, this is still a pretty battle-scarred and in pain Connecticut economy. And and in some ways, state workers have their, – their jobs and salaries have been more recession-proof than what's been out in the private sector. And and I think it is hard to ask the electorate. I mean, you know, we can all ask the millionaires for more money. I don't know how that's going to work out. But, I mean, just in terms of the average person, it's hard to a- ask that average person to bear that cost, particularly if he or she still hasn't really been made whole from 2008. Dan? Well, we're not ever going to be made whole from 2008 because we are in – uh, you know the perma session and the the permanent uh, fiscal crisis. So, uh, in terms of state workers, one of the problems is that state workers who are less skilled and less educated tend to make more money working for the state than their counterparts in private sector industries. State workers with uh, either college degrees or advanced degrees and who have higher skills tend to make less. And so, virtually every one of the two hundred assistant attorneys general, for example makes less than he or she would make in a law firm, clearly. Um, you can say that for all the judges. You can say that for inspectors. The point is that it's very difficult to go after uh, uh, people because you end up going after the wrong people. And if we go after the lower paid state employees, that's just plain mean and unfair. Uh, and the unions are quick to point that out. Well, I want to move on to something else. And we'll get back to jobs numbers that are out this week in just a moment. But I, I want to turn to one of the other outgrowths of this state of permanent fiscal crisis, cuts coming to higher education. The State Board of Regents asked for concessions from its union teachers. And, you know, when these uh, when I read through these and you have a long list of these in your story, Jackie, for the Connecticut Mirror, um, there's an awful lot of givebacks. And I can only imagine that uh, the professors in the CSU system weren't terribly pleased. What exactly is the Board of Regents asking for? So during their first negotiation, they they sat down on October 1st and provided them with a proposal. And on that proposal, there was, you know, more part-time staff. So having more adjunct, less experienced staff teaching, have more office hours for staff from six to seven hours. Um, personal f- personnel files would have to be released to the public through Freedom of Information Act requests. Funding decisions would would help determine whether class sizes could be larger. Right now, that's an academic decision, whether or not that makes it the pedagogical sense. The staff transfer would be able to transfer to another state university without guaranteeing they get to keep their tenure longevity would be eliminated. So these bonuses that they get every single year just for showing up and having certain years of experience under their belt, they get a, a an annual bonus. Um, students get, or sorry, the, 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 the kids of of the faculty get free grad school right now. That yes. would no longer be an option. So, I mean, that's just, you know, some of, that's 
maybe page five of 25 pages. So there, I mean, the list is on and on and on. Faculty said they felt like they, they were attacked with these proposals. Okay, so faculty uh, felt like they were attacked. And I, and I want to get some comment on some of those proposals, some of which probably seem draconian, some of which seem fairly common sense uh, in a moment. But I mean, how much money is the CSU system trying to save? I mean, is, is there a sense that there's a number they're trying to get to, and that's why they're asking for these givebacks? That's an interesting question. They um, they have not they have not said how much of a deficit they are facing. I mean, there is no question that they are facing fiscal problems right now. Um, their enrollment is steadily declining. They have increasing labor costs. It just it's I could go on and on about their their fiscal challenges that they face. How much of a deficit they actually face next year is actually something they they have said that they don't it would be too hard to determine right now because there's so many moving parts when you factor in tuition when what it will be next year, what the state level of funding will be and what labor costs will be because of these contract negotiations. So, so essentially what they're saying is we're trying to save money, but we we can't even tell you how much right, right. now. We can't tell you the fiscal problem that we're in, how much we, we need to save to get to where we're at. UConn is in the same situation. And, by UCon- the way. and we're going to get to UConn in a second. First, I guess a comment from you, Colin, on just this proposal from the Board of Regents. Well, I think there's a lot of ways to look at this. And, I mean, sort of on the on the at first blush, it is a power grab by the board of regents. In other words, they are going to have under this proposal a lot more power, to, including the power of retrenchment, the power to just get rid of people. Um, you know, and, and so that it looks a little ominous, and you can understand why the AAUP, even nationally, is freaking out and saying, "Is this Scott Walker Chapter Two?" Um, on the other hand, I, I don't know. I've thought a lot more about this over the last twenty-four to forty-eight hours. The Board of Regents, in some ways, they're sort of willing to be the bad guy, all right? Because nobody ever wants to be the bad guy. It was hard for Dan Malloy five years to be the bad guy with state employees and you know really hit them uh, with stuff that they didn't like. Um, it's it's hard for college presidents to be the bad guy. They don't want to really be. The, they want most of the stuff that's in this proposal, but they don't really want to be the bad guy. Um, so the Board of Regents. Uh, is actually making some changes, many of which kind of make sense if, and I was talking to Jackie about this on the elevator on the way up, a lot of it depends on what they do with the power they get, what they and the college presidents do with the power they get. There are ways in which the system does need to be right-sized, and there's ways in which the system needs to match up better with the needs of students. So, you know, in terms of this class size thing, I mean, one of the things I think, this the current document that I'm looking at is 150 pages long, with including its appendices. I, I hate documents that are that long. But, um, you know, it kind of looks like one thing that they might be trying to do. I mean, a lot of these colleges, for example, base the budgeting of departments on what happened the year before as opposed on like how much money they got the year before as opposed to how many students actually enroll in these classes so i think this this would give them a little bit more power the probably the college at the probably the college president level to say well no we're not going to allocate that much money because in fact the class size is blowing up over here and shrinking down over over there another thing that i notice here is that counselors are eliminated from tenure i think um, which is interesting. This is one of the real kind of choke points of the college system. You've got a lot of kids and, and people who are not kids anymore coming into this system. Their resources are precious. Their time is precious. They need to get a degree and they can't really fool around. And one crit- criticism of this system is it, it, at the counseling level, it's not good. It's saying to students coming in, here's what you need to do. Here's the courses you need to take. Here's the order you need to take them in. And yes, I can guarantee you that in spring of 2017, you'll be able to take that course that I'm telling you you need 
need to take, it will be offered on that campus. And that's a little bit of a failure of the whole system, but um, counselors need to be better. This is one of the ways that the students who ought to be part of this conversation that we're having right now need to be served better. So it is all about right-sizing right now. They're facing major declines in enrollment right now, so they do sort of have this capacity to teach a lot more, uh, many, many more students, and they have a faculty that's ready for that. So getting the flexibility to shrink when they need to through strategic plans so they don't rely on attrition and, you know, f- random faculty leaving in, in programs that might be high need, like an English, t- if an English professor, professor leaves, they're, they're going to need English classes are still going to, to be right. needed on college campuses. So one of the, the creative ways that they've tried to sort of fill that gap is through this new proposal that they have to begin offering courses in some of the correctional facilities, which sort of goes with, you know, this Second Chance Society initiative that both the Obama administration and the Malloy administration have really been pushing for. So that could help boost enrollment and it would be paid for through Pell Grants. So they're, they're looking at non traditional ways to sort of help fill their financial problems so they're not so reliant on faculty givebacks. I, I did sit down with the new president, Ojekian, last week, and he said, look, I'm the same person who negotiated on behalf of the Malloy administration back in 2011 on major concessions. And faculty and state employees liked me. I think I, I think it's fair to say that state employees did like him. So he said, I'm the same guy that negotiated that. I, I want to go into this with good faith to make sure when he came onto the job, this proposal that we were just talking about, that was day three for him on the job. So he, um, he <laughs> said, you know, I didn't really have a chance to put my fingerprints on it. So it's sort of where did that proposal come from right. to begin Tonally, with? Totally. It is a very, very different proposal from the one that he was negotiating five years ago. I mean, this is much more a kind of my way or the highway proposal. I'd make a small point and a big point. The small point is the idea that they don't know what their deficit is going to be next year is just pure nonsense. Every single one of the factors you mentioned is a factor that can be measured and calculated going forward. That's just silliness. The second larger point I would make is that the system, if this were a widget maker and a, a singular system, then the problems would be one set of things. That is, you cut costs and you stop doing certain things and all that. But unfortunately, this is the engine or an, an engine that feeds the Connecticut economy. And so it's sort of a, you know, it's a, it's a, a self-defeating loop or self-perpetuating defeating <laughs> loop in that you, you have to keep pouring more money into it or you really lose down the road. Every study we know shows that the Connecticut's economy is going to need more college graduates, not fewer, despite the fact that the labor market is sluggish in hiring them. Although it is, as Colin said, it's picking up uh, and even picking up at the median, by the way, somewhat. Um, and so here you have a problem where you need these graduates. So what you have to do is fix the whole sort of big picture fundamental problem. It seems to me the Board of Regents is the right body to do that. And they should exert as much power as they can over entrenched management. As, yeah. as, as widget makers go too, I mean one thing that makes them different – another – one of the many things that makes them different from a widget maker is uh, the preponderance of personnel costs here. In other words, it's a $1.2 billion budget. $800 million of that is personnel cost. So I mean you can't – you know, you can't buy fewer – 
widget components or something like that. Well, you can lay off. Yeah. I well, mean, everything's going to have to happen at the personnel level. Well, look, but you were also talking about one system. I mean, Connecticut now is set up with really two higher education systems. There's the CSU system, which handles the community colleges and the four state universities. And then there's the UConn system, which is a, a different system run in a different way. And it's meant to be this uh, grand research university. It's something that has grown uh, over the course of time. And, Colin, one of the things that is happening here is as UConn looks to cut back, it actually seems to be proposing cuts that uh, cut right at the heart of its ability to do some of that research. Right. Now, let me just preface this by saying from the point of view of the conversation that we just had about the state un- rest of the state university system and the community colleges, this is going to be a little bit like Hartford Golf Club, you know, members complaining about their tea times. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, it's because, I mean, UConn still is the favored child of the system in, in ways that are all out of proportion. But um, so, yeah, there's two big areas where there, that I'm aware of where there are kind of Indian uprisings there um, uh, out there on the prairies of Mansfield. One of them is uh, in the area of the library. There's a proposed $1.9 billion cut to the library. Uh, $1.9 million, uh, billion, excuse me. It was not that bad. We don't have that good a library. <laughs> $1.9 million over the, over the next two years. It's a hell of a library. Yeah, that would be a great library. <laughs> um, it, it's the position of the faculty that the library has never been all that great anyway. In terms of the kind of research one institution that uh, President Herbst has proposed that they are or that they should be, it's never been up to snuff compared to comparable uh, institutions. If you cut more, if you cut $1.9 million over two years, you're going to make it a lot, a lot worse. Um, they are adding to that complaint the fact, the usual fact that, and this is a nationwide trend, but it's, I think, pretty bad at UConn, that administrative bloat continues despite, you know, cuts to things like library resources. So, um, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, you've got this explosion of an assistant vice provost of institutional research plus 13 assistant or associate deeds of research. On average, that group is earning $193,000 in salary and cost the university almost $5.5 million, according to one uh, angry uh, email that was circulated among faculty members. So that's complaint one. Complaint two is almost weirder, which is, and I don't entirely understand this, but apparently because of a recalculation of the way that the state or that UConn in particular is looking at fringe benefits, the grants that they are getting, the grants that research professors are getting are going to be charged differently for fringe benefits. And it seems possible, once again, all of my information about this comes from disgruntled emails that are being circulated among professors right now. <laughs> but it seems, it seems definite that if you applied to the NIH tomorrow for a grant, for, to anybody for a grant tomorrow, you, the UConn professor, would have to say more of, more of this is going to be overhead than was in the past. So if if it was a $1.5 million uh, grant to the past and $500,000 of that was overhead, maybe it's going to be $700,000, $750,000 in overhead right now, which makes UConn less competitive in getting future grants. But it also seems possible that some of the grants they already have may be administered differently under this proposal so that they may have told the grantor that they were going to use X amount of money for uh, overhead costs, and it may be X plus N amount for overhead costs, which tends to also erode 
the level of confidence that grantors place in you if, in fact, you sort of start handling your grants differently. So anyway, I'm just reporting the anxiety and anger yeah. of the faculty. I, that's all I know about it so far. I, I, and Jackie, one thing I know about in my limited experience in applying for federal grants is they really love it when you when you change the amount of overhead after the fact. But anyway, please, do you have <laughs> any thoughts on this? Yeah. So just overall, as far as research spending goes at the University of Connecticut and the Health Center, it really hasn't increased over the last several years. It's, I mean, for all the promises of increasing research expenditures, it's really remained pretty steady. And in some years, it's decreased, you know, minorly. Um, that being said, it's 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 really difficult to get a larger share of the same pie when you have so many faculty going after the same grants. Um, as far as what Colin was talking about, the way that the I've heard the same complaint that the way that health and and retirement benefits are paid for, that there's concern that research assistants that work for tenured track faculty or, or those who are doing the, these research projects are now having to pay into the retirement account when there's no way they're ever going to qualify to, to draw on that retirement account. So it's it's increasing overhead costs for them. I, I haven't had a chance to, you know, find out how far that proposal is going, whether or not it's already taking place right now. But it is a major concern that I've heard from some people. Quick thought, Dan? Well, I would not describe an X plus N allocation plus an Indian uh, uh, Uprising, but I would say that that R and D spending is also dropping in the private sector. We saw yesterday UTC's uh, quarterly report: R and D spending quarter over quarter down ninety four million dollars or fifteen percent. Money is tight everywhere, and that we need to take that into account politically when we look at public R and D spending. Not to say we should cut it, but just the fact that money is tight everywhere. Uh, Daniel, we know him as Danny Har. He's the columnist for the Hartford Current. Uh, is here Jacqueline Rabe Thomas, who reports on education and child welfare for the Connecticut Mirror, is here as well, along with our own Colin McEnroe. When we come back, we're going to be talking about funding at the K-12 through level in a new lawsuit, well, an old lawsuit that's finally going to come to fruition in January. We're also going to be talking about the juvenile training school a bit more and, well, more attempts to build a casino in Connecticut, maybe this time at the airport. That's all coming up from the wheelhouse where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Today it's The Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. We're joined by Dan Haar, who's a columnist for The Hartford Current, Jacqueline Rabe-Thomas, who reports on education and child welfare for the Connecticut Mirror, and our own Colin McEnroe, who hosts The Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR every day at 1 o'clock. What's happening on your show today, Colin? Well, it's sort of, uh, you know, like a Chinese menu. It'll be Arthur Miller in two styles. Uh, <laughs> and so the, the first course will be uh, Arthur Miller, the playwright, uh, and theater god Mark Lamos is uh, coming to Hartford to, just for the purposes of talking to us. Uh, about about uh, Arthur Miller's theatrical uh, legacy. But also, Arthur Miller was very involved in several prominent criminal cases here in Connecticut, the first one being uh, Peter Riley, a, a murder case up in Falls Village that seemed to involve a coerced confession. And then he also got involved somewhat in the Richard LaPointe case, largely because his attitudes about confessions had been heavily informed by what he'd seen in the Peter Riley case. So that'll be the, the second part. I mean, a lot of people are talking about the 100th anniversary of the birth of Arthur Miller um, theatrically, which is very appropriate of course, but there's this other part that we wanted to cover, too. I always prefer the Arthur Miller Kung Pao style. Right, exactly. It's always my favorite. Uh, that's coming up at 1 o'clock on the Colin McEnroe Show. It, we were talking a bit about funding for the state's higher education system. Uh, now let's talk for a moment with Jackie Rabe Thomas about the school funding lawsuit that's been well, sort of rolling around for years, the Connecticut Coalition for Justice and Education Funding versus RHEL. This trial's uh, now going to happen in January. A judge ruled this week that the trial will include 
preschool and a look at how the state funds education. Maybe you can just give us a thumbnail of what we're expecting to see in January and, and adding into this this whole preschool component, Jackie. Sure. So this case is really determining what the Supreme Court sent decided six years, almost six years ago, to determine whether the state is providing an adequate education for every child in Connecticut. A group of district leaders, educators, teachers, and parents are suing the state saying that the state is not meeting that threshold of providing an adequate education. So that's what will be determined in January. It's expected to be a weeks-long trial. Um, Last week, a Hartford Superior Court judge determined that he will allow testimony surrounding preschool and whether the state is responsible for preparing kids for kindergarten so they show up ready to learn. He wants to he wants to decide whether or not the state that needs to be one of the remedies the state is responsible for when when providing an adequate education for for children. So, so essentially, I mean, the judge in this case could could rule on whether or not universal pre-K, something we've been hearing about for a very long time, state-provided universal pre-education is actually something we're on the hook for. So I, I don't know if I would go so far as calling it universal pre-K, universal access to preschool and making sure that income doesn't pro- prohibit someone from entering kindergarten or their family's income doesn't prohibit them. In in some states, there's been 11 states that have included preschool and school funding lawsuits. Um, most notably in New Jersey, it created what is known as the Abbott District. So a group of low-income districts in New Jersey were ordered by a court to provide universal preschool, universal access to preschool school in those districts in the in the first couple years after that decision was made enrollment preschool enrollment increased in those districts from about 6000 kids to over 50000 so it had a dramatic impact I, so i just have to ask i mean depending on what happens and again this lawsuit's been going around, along for such a long time that i believe dan malloy was was part of this suit when he was the mayor of stamford right i mean there's a whole bunch of cities and towns and and and, and folks around the state who've been looking at this for a number of years Given what we talked about earlier and the state of permanent fiscal crisis, I mean, does this have the possibility of essentially forcing the state's hand uh, in providing funding in a different way than it is right now? And do we have any do we have any mechanism to pay for uh, more school funding if indeed this is what we have to do? So that's a very interesting question. So there's going to be two phases of the trial. First, the first phase is whether or not we are, in fact, already providing a certain quality of education for children. And then if it's decided you move, it's decided that we're not, then you move on to phase two of what a remedy would look like. That could be a legis- – it might be handed back to the legislature to determine like has been done in several other cases in the past. You know, the chef remedy was handed back to the legislature who took years to decide how to respond to that. Or it could be a judge determining here's what needs to happen and very concrete X, Y, and Z needs to take place. It's It'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I don't want to pretend to know how <laughs> – what his remedy would be. Hey, well, as we saw with chef, it clearly – is uh, ultimately a political remedy no matter what the courts decide because the, the courts can only go so far in opening up the wallets of taxpayers and saying, hey, here, do this. And the courts can only go so far in redistricting schools, creating magnet schools and so forth so forth to address the underlying issue, which is, of course, desegregation. But, but in Chef, I think the only, the only difference is, I mean, one of the initial remedies, it ended up being this voluntary program. And it was about, it was about desegregation. But there wasn't any mandate placed on school districts to specifically specifically do anything, which is why this is sort of dragged on forever. If we're actually talking about, you know, eventually saying 
the state has to fund schools in a different way, whether or not that's political down the road, it seems as though that's going to be at the legislature, at the governor's office to say, OK, now we've got to figure out how to comply with his court order. Right. So what a court order potentially has the ability to do is potentially get around constitutional spending cap issues. So if the court does order it, then, you know, it, it gives them some flexibility to add some spending. It also does sort of force the legislature's hand. I've spoken with some legislators who are, you know, rooting for CJF. They they think that their districts are underfunded. So I think it really it might provide the will in the legislature to, to do something. So I Connecticut is kind of sui generis uh, in this regard, particularly because our constitution has stronger mandates than a typical state constitution does. So really, in some ways, this is the the, the third uh, lawsuit of this kind. We started with Horton versus Meskel, then we moved to Shep versus O'Neill, and now this. I mean, all of them have essentially the same aim. Um, none of them so far has produced really significant remedies. And and I think those remedies need to come. But I would, you know, Dan said the underlying question or issue is desegregation. Well, the issue that underlies that one is poverty. Um, and ultimately, uh, I'm all in favor of um, equalizing school funding if, uh, and funding schools in a better way. Uh, and obviously, some of these city schools right now, I mean, the resources that they have are pathetic and, and inadequate. But ultimately, even if you do that a lot better, if you don't lift more people up out of poverty, you're going to still have these problems because you only go to school for so many hours a day and then you go home. The, you know, in some ways, the conversation we're having about the state college and university system, about the community colleges and the state universities is key to, uh, is tied to this in some way. We, we need to create better mobility for the parents of these kids. You have a quick thought, Jackie? So the state's response to the plaintiffs, the, the lawsuit has been largely there was a reform package in 2012 that that largely didn't spend additional new funding. They directed um, about 150 million more additional resources to lo- the lowest performing districts with with the asterisk that they had to provide certain additional reforms such as extended day, additional preschool seats, that sort of thing. So there, the state's sort of defense is we are moving in the right direction. Those t- 2012 reforms were so great that we are on the right path to providing an adequate education. I, I just, I'm going to turn to you quickly, Danny, because I think I heard you harumph a moment ago. Did you harumph? Well, the harumph was, was sort of an ironic harumph, which is that if 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 poverty underlies segregation or desegregation as a problem uh, and educational problems are, are addressed by desegregation, we can close the loop by saying that poverty is addressed by education. And so we have, again, a continuous loop as we did in the last discussion. Oh, oh great. Another continuous loop. You're always so cheery. Uh, speaking of cheery, let's move on to the Connecticut Juvenile Training School. You report this week, Jackie, that uh, CJTS uh, – this is not CCJEF, which we were talking about a moment ago, but CJTS, which is the Connecticut Juvenile Training School, workers are working long hours and several are earning salaries in the six figures. They're working such long hours, there are questions about whether or not they're able to adequately do their job. I think there's probably two questions raised here, right? One is people working long hours and maybe not being as effective as possible and making six-figure six salaries. These are all kind of tied up together. Right. So one in four of the workers who – the frontline staff the, of the resource officers over there are working such long hours that they're making more than $20,000 a year in overtime. And so we're talking about the $3.2 million that was spent last year on overtime there. Almost all of it, I think it was like 84 percent, went to frontline staff. So when you're talking about increases in overtime, you're talking about the those who are 
having to, you know, make sure that this this facility is secure and safe and 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 there's questions whether how how well are they able to do that if they're working 16-hour shifts. Some some of the people that I interviewed that work with these individuals, they are really dedicated and they say, you know, we 16-hour shifts are a, a a regular thing in this profession. I and, and that's in addition to their normal 40-hour work week. So they're, they're having to work long hours. The Department of Children and Families has been resistant to provide how many hours each individual is. They've provided at the aggregate level of how it's about 80,000 hours in overtime that, they've, that workers there are doing. But so all you're able to really see is the dollar figures of what they're earning so it's it's a little questionable of how many exactly hours they're working. And of course, this is all you know with the overlay of a couple of investigations into conduct at the school having to do with illegal restraint and seclusion. Um, this is something we've talked about certainly, Colin. But this <laughs> this new piece of it adds another little layer. Yeah. Okay. So this is a real Gordian knot, and in a way, we could have done the whole show by just kicking this one problem and pulling each thread off of it because it's it's all the stuff we're talking about anyway. So one of the things that Jackie's reported is that when they're understaffed, they have to go to OPM, to the central budget office, the Ben Barnes people, to, to hire into these um, empty positions. So, you know, that kind of gets to Dan Malloy's point. Well, you know, Connecticut has to decide how much state government they can afford. Well, you can make a decision that you don't need so many people or that you're not going to fill empty positions, but then there are these needs that go begging, you know, in, in pretty drastic situations like this one. Now, CGTS, I mean, it's a Gordian knot because it shouldn't exist in the first place. It never should have been built. It was built along the wrong lines of kind of extending a, a really heavy-handed penological uh, philosophy to a youth population. Um, it was so bad when it was done that uh, Jody Rell didn't want to open it. <laughs> so, and now, yeah, you have like these strange, I mean, it's like William Golding is writing the script to this or something. You have things in Jackie's reporting where some guy who got hurt tackling somebody, some kid he probably never should have tackled in the first place, then has to work all the way through his shift with a gash on his head or something because he hurt himself tackling somebody because he's overstressed from working too many hours because the place doesn't exist in the right way. The rules are all wrong. It's a dangerous place for kids. I mean, that's what I mean uh, by boarding. Talk about a closed loop or a circle you can't break yeah, into. It, it, it is every crazy thing about the state's approach to budgeting and penology is all in this story. The state saw this with its social workers at DCF as well. About two years ago, the court monitor had to keep writing letters to the Appropriations Committee chair saying, look, we don't have enough social workers. Their caseloads are getting so large. And finally, they hired the additional staff. You had it at UConn, where UConn was saying, our security forces, our overtime is going so high. So you do see it other places in state government where you are, you're, you're trying to rein in state costs and you're, you're doing it by relying on overtime. Okay, so we've established we've got a state of permanent fiscal crisis. The serpent is eating its tail. All sorts of closed loops here. Let's talk about how we're going to solve the problem when we come back from a break. It's gambling. Yes, maybe even gambling at Bradley International Airport. We're in the wheelhouse with Colin McEnroe, Jacqueline, uh, Jacqueline Rabe Thomas from The Mirror, and Dan Har from The Hartford Current. This is where we live. <music> 
This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up tomorrow, Planned Parenthood took center stage in a congressional debate about federal funding for the agency. We'll ask people from both sides of this debate to weigh in on the future of Planned Parenthood in Connecticut. Also, it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month, just as new guidelines are out about when and how often women should get mammograms. We'll talk about those stories tomorrow, Where We Live. Today's The Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. We're talking with Colin McEnroe from The Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Jackie Rabe Thomas, who reports on education and child welfare for the Connecticut Mirror, and Dan Haar from the Hartford Current. Uh, Dan, jobs numbers are out. The Department of Labor announced uh, on Monday it shows the state lost about 7,600 jobs in September, but the unemployment rate actually fell one-tenth of a percent to 5.2. Anything new and new, newsworthy in these jobs numbers for you, Dan? As the economists say, it didn't happen. Uh, we had a huge <laughs> increase of 5,400 in August, followed by a huge decrease of 7,600 in September. We're seeing two things. One, a, f- a general flattening out in the fall of uh, the job market, which is potentially a worry but not a worry yet. Uh, and two, just the fact that the data collection methods are not adequate to to, to accurately describe what's happening month to month. Uh, a loss in jobs in the state not expected to be helped by ESPN, the uh, big entertainment company based in Bristol. Bloomberg News is reporting today that up to 350 employees will be notified about layoffs today. Dan, worries about ESPN? Yes, that's uh, at least a bright spot in the sense that the last time they had layoffs in 2013, they nonetheless they, – they cut about 125 Connecticut jobs but nonetheless continued over the two-year period since then to add jobs in Bristol to 4,200 to 4, uh, from 4,000. So overall ESPN is not the point of worry but when an ESPN is not hiring, that's like Google not hiring. Oh, uh, well, OK. So it's, it's, it's that big a deal. Uh, moving on to some of the entertainment plans that are happening for the I-91 corridor. Uh, boy, reading the Hartford Current over the course of the last couple of weeks, Dan, there's all these amazing stories about what's happening with the soccer stadium. Of course, the Yardgirds baseball stadium we've been talking about for a while. It's way over budget. Uh, the right field roof was uh, removed to save money. Now there's Dillon Stadium, which was supposed to bring professional outdoor soccer to Hartford. But that plan has dissolved after the current reported on the legal troubles of the developer. What? It's such a mess. It's forced the guy who's developing uh, Hartford at the, at, at the city level to resign. What's happening, Dan? It's poor management of bad ideas. The problem is that the, <laughs> the, 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 the idea to begin with is stupid. You can't spend 30 to $40 million on a soccer stadium in Connecticut. I stayed up all night one night trying to figure out a way to make the numbers work. And the bottom line is that each ticket, to, if you've got 300,000 people a year at those events, each ticket, depending on how much you charged – was 10 to $25 before you paid a person with a broom, before you hired anyone on the field, just to pay interest on the building. It's stupid. It's not going to happen. And so not seeing this, the people in the fading Segarra administration were willing to say, OK, go ahead, let's try that. And that's just the result of, of, of I don't know what. B- bad management of stupid ideas, Colin. Do you have better analysis than that? <laughs> well, you know, my analysis is similar. I mean, I, b- both with the baseball stadium and, and with this, with the soccer stadium, which, by the way, I mean, it seems to affect two different ideas. The indoor soccer team is connected to the outdoor soccer team, and they both may be circling the drain right now. Uh, but it is as though the, the, civic, the city leaders, uh, both on the council and then Tom Deller, who uh, resigned this week. And by the way, People don't resign that abruptly from jobs like that unless the details that are going to come out 
uh, are going to be a lot worse. So my guess is that as more shoes drop, it's going to get worse and worse in terms of either, either overpayments by the city or, or other stuff. But it, it is as though I feel like I'm watching Gomer Pyle. You know, I mean, these guys go and they meet with these these sports titans, and they come back and they go, "Well, I just talked to the nicest man, and he said if I built him a baseball stadium, <laughs> we could have a lot of fun." And there's this other guy who's real nice who says we can have soccer here too. <laughs> and all I have to do. You know, and it's just like you don't have the level of sophistication to deal with these people, um, and and you don't have the level of sophistication to make good decisions that are going to work over the long haul. So yeah, I would just double down on what Danny said. I would say the baseball stadium is is bad management of a good idea mm. uh, because the baseball stadium can work, the numbers yeah. can work. Unfortunately, the numbers fall on the backs of city taxpayers, whereas it should be a state uh, uh, expense. Okay, so if the panacea for Hartford is soccer stadiums and baseball stadiums in Springfield, it's a Casino and the casino war between Connecticut and Massachusetts has some new developments. First, now the MGM Casino in Springfield now wants a 14% reduction in square footage. It's a plan not terribly surprising after the news that the Tall Tower Hotel has been phased out. Springfield's Mayor Dominic Sarno didn't exactly take the news well. I have not, nor will I approve any changes that has a negative impact on jobs and revenue coming to the city of Springfield and the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Okay, so uh, the people in Springfield not exactly excited about the, the scaling back of this big casino plan. Meanwhile, the news about this casino came out on the same day that the Hartford Current is reporting that the Connecticut Airport Authority is interested in bringing a casino to Bradley International Airport. So right now, Connecticut is fighting a, a border war with Massachusetts. It seems as though the company that wants to build a casino in Massachusetts, Colin, is trying to just slowly back out of the whole thing. Meanwhile, we're not just developing some brownfield and enfield now. We're talking about building a casino at the airport. Well, I like brownfield and enfield. That's kind of a nice uh, – so, yeah. I mean, look, now maybe just to go back to Danny's trope, you know, we have to sort of prioritize the bad ideas in the order of how bad they are or how not bad they are. So one of the things that I think Massachusetts is seeing that is that in this fairy tale about casino gambling and what it can do and the revenues it can produce, it's, it's like on the walk home from the village, you know, you you start out with three magic beans in your hand, and you got about one and a half by the time you get home to mom. You know uh, that, it, that these proposals don't even hold together, kind of during the developmental phases. What we've seen in Connecticut has been different. We got to build the casinos, or they got to build the casinos, but then the handle started to go down. I would say, of all of the bad ideas. <laughs> <laughs> of all the bad ideas, I like the airport one the best. I actually think, you know, Kevin Dillon, you got to give the guy credit. He really wants to do something with that whole he's, zone He's up the there. executive director of the airport authority. Yep. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, like I don't like any of these ideas, but if I had to pick one, maybe maybe it could work at the airport in some weird way. I, I assume you're being sarcastic. This could possibly be <laughs> the single stupidest idea. And I agree 100 percent. You have to give it to the authority. They see something out there and their charge is to make things happen yeah. and they're making Making things happen. But let's think about this. Number one, it takes about as long to get to the airport as it does to get to Springfield because of sure. Route 20 spur. So you don't get any benefit there. Number two, airports are places where you want to get people in and out quickly. That's unbelievable that they would put a casino in an airport. Number three, a lot of people in our culture object to casinos. If they don't want to go to one, they don't have to. They do have to go to airports. Therefore, it's objectionable on a moral basis. Okay, you, you talk me out of it. Haven't you ever been stuck in a layover in Las Vegas? Yeah, you get a chance to, to play right there at the gate, Danny. It's a really, it's a great benefit, There's a reason. Think? There's a reason why no other airport has one of these. It's the, Even in Mississippi, they haven't done this. 
This is unbelievable. Okay, so let's end on some actually what seems like maybe good news for the airport, okay? So maybe Dan thinks it's a bad idea to build a casino there, but it looks as though we might have an announcement today that Aer Lingus will add a direct route between Bradley and Dublin. We've had a few international flights, actual international flights, out of Bradley over the course of the last couple of years, Dan, but they've sort of fizzled. Um, this time it looks like we might have a real one and another company lining up behind them. Uh, yes, Aer Lingus. Uh, Norwegian Air is a, a little bit more uh, flighty, the Norwegian shuttle at $69. Aer Lingus seems to be real. I think the question is uh, how long will it last, as you suggested, and how much did the state pay? The reports uh, of $5 million seem high, and I assume that that would include the cost of the, the gate uh, waivers. But, but, and, and that's part of it. The question is when does state investment actually make sense? Does $5 million in trying to get uh, you know, an international flight to Dublin actually make sense versus $5 million on some other business to create a couple jobs? We can update what Frank Zappa said. We have a football team. We have many beers, and you need not just an airport but an international airport. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, first of all, I think this is beyond maybe now. I think it's a, basically a done deal. It's a deal. done deal. It's a yes. done deal. Oh, it, yeah. it is going to happen. Uh, what we learned with the flight, direct flight to Amsterdam, sometimes these done deals don't hold together all that, that long. That lasted for about a year. Right. So, and I think Dan's right to say that we really kind of need to see the numbers on this. Like, how, how much do we have to bribe Air Lingus <laughs> to do this? Uh, and is it worth it? It seems, from the user's point of view, to be an eminently worthwhile idea. But that could be just our own innate selfishness. Like, I want... I want to go to Dublin and I want to be able to take cheap flights from Dublin to other European destinations. And it just seems like it would be really good if you could do that out of Bradley. Whether it really makes sense as a public expenditure, we'll see. And that's really the key question, Jackie, is would you take a flight out of Bradley International Airport to Dublin? Sounds pretty good, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think I would sign up for that. You know, I think a lot of people, though, said they'd sign up for the Amsterdam flight, too, and nobody really did, and that's why they canceled that. And of course, it had to do with uh, airline mergers as well, Dan. Dublin is a good location for a hub because it is uh, on the Great Circle route. You typically fly over that area of the world anyway, even if you're going to, say, Israel. Uh, and so it's, it's a pretty good shot. It's not as long as flying to uh, continental Europe and it's not that people are going to be going from Connecticut to Ireland. It's that that's going to be the Connecticut hub to Europe. Okay. Well, it's nice when we can actually end with maybe a little bit of good news for Connecticut and the Connecticut economy. I want to thank Dan Haar, who's a columnist for the Hartford Current. Thank you so much, Danny. Thank you. Thanks to Jacqueline Rabe Thomas, who reports on education and child welfare for the Connecticut Mirror. Thank you, Jackie. Thanks for having me. And thanks to Colin McEnroe. He's the host of the Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Thank you, Colin. Erin Gobra. Our program is produced, as always, by Tucker Ives, Lydia Brown, Betsy Kaplan, and Josh Nalea help out, along with technical production by Kion Wolf. Our digital editor is Heather Brandon, the executive producer of Where We Live, is Katie Talarski. I'm John Dankowski. This is Where We Live.